Tate Chronicles now transmitting. Welcome to the Tate Chronicles on Healthcare Now Radio. And now, here's your host, Jim Tate. Good day, citizens of the free world from border to border, coast to coast, and to all the ships at sea. I bring you a warm welcome. This is your correspondent, Jim Tate, and thank you for tuning in today to the Tate Chronicles. Join me as we cut to the fog that exists at the leading edge of healthcare technology. My guest today is Lisa Berry, CEO of Civitas Networks for Health. Civitas is a national collaborative comprised of member organizations working to use health information exchange, health data, and multi-stakeholder cross-sector approaches to improve health. Lisa, thanks for joining me today on the Take Chronicles. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Um, it's really timely that we're speaking today because uh, in August, I believe August 20 through 23rd, is the annual Civitas Conference just a few weeks away. Uh, can you kind of give me a sense of what the themes are going to be or what you think some of the main uh, areas of discussion folks will be talking about? Yeah, absolutely. As you can imagine, in a relatively small organization, we are all hands on deck preparing for the conference. Mm, and so, of course, um, this year is our second slash our third conference as Civitas. We announced Civitas's creation, which was created from the Strategic Health Information Exchange Collaborative and the Network for Regional Healthcare Improvement coming together in 2021 at the Sheet Conference. And then this is our second real Civitas conference. And I will say it is exceeding our expectations in terms of the content and the keynote speakers and the way that the conference sessions and all of the things we're bringing together really display the reason why we created Civitas. Um, as uh, one of our board members, Dr. Tom Evans, likes to say, uh, Civitas is the bridge between data and doing. And mm -hmm. all of the sessions really display that. You've got some great examples of how different types of organizations and collaboratives and states and other stakeholders are using data from HIEs and from other networks to actually improve health, improve public health, improve social determinants of health, improve clinical care. And those are all on display at the conference. Well, um, I'm, I'm hoping I'm going to make it. Uh, it sounds like something that I personally don't want, don't want to miss. Um, Lisa, I know you have a deep background in healthcare data interoperability, not only from the technical side, uh, but also in terms of policy development. I want to look forward to exploring those in detail. But first, tell me what's the mission of Civitas and what types of organizations make up your membership? Yeah, absolutely. You know, our mission is to bring together the various organizations doing this work ranging from regional health improvement collaboratives to all-payer claims databases or those doing public reporting about healthcare quality and cost to the regional and statewide health information exchanges and other networks doing that work and the technology and support organizations that they work with to make all of that happen. You can really think of us as the regional and statewide level of all this work. There are plenty of national and nationwide approaches. Mm -hmm. We are really here representing those local innovators. Our tagline is regional innovation, national impact, and that's definitely what we stand for. Um, really trying to reiterate that health and healthcare is local. We have all kinds of you know, like again, national and nationwide approaches and national um, policy, federal policy, 
But where things really happen is at that state and regional and local level. As you, of course, know, um, things like privacy laws, data privacy laws, how we use healthcare data um, really vary state by state, region by region. So do the structures of our health and healthcare systems. We don't have one healthcare system. We have many, many healthcare systems. And they're really different if you're getting care in Mississippi or in Massachusetts. It is an extremely different experience with different people, different organizations, different laws, different preferences. And because of that, we really emphasize supporting those local innovators. That's what's important to us. So again, you know, who are our members? It really is. We cover nearly all of the regional and statewide health information exchanges across the country, as well as those regional health improvement collaboratives, which include all payer claims databases, community health improvement organizations, and quality improvement organizations doing their work in their communities. And we represent them as well at the federal level. We say, hey, pay attention to these local health innovators. True. They matter. If you want to implement those national, those federal policies, you need those regional state and local people to be doing the work and actually implementing it on the ground. It will not happen without them. I couldn't have put it uh, better <laughs> myself. Uh, um, and, you know, there's some aspects of data, uh, social determinants of health, and, and that is regional, local. Uh, yes. uh, and that information is needed to know uh, where the um, healthcare delivery deserts are and and the best way yes. to deliver services. Absolutely. And, and, and again, it's great to pass a law or to write a regulation. As you know, I've worked at the CMS Innovation Center. I have mm -hmm. experience writing regulations, interpreting policy, trying to implement program policy um, at the federal level. You know, you will get nowhere and you don't have any knowledge. You can't sit here and Google it. You can try, but you won't know until you're actually on the ground in those communities doing the work day to day. And so supporting a thriving networks across the country, if you will, of you know infrastructure-like organizations, health improvement organizations, community responsive organizations is how you actually turn those technology policies, those healthcare policies into action and are able to actually act on health equity goals, actually act on closing those gaps, not just identifying them on a map, but then going out and delivering care in response to the data that you have. I'd like to switch horses just a little bit here, Lisa, and talk about barriers to interoperability. Um, mm -hmm. And I know some of this is technical, some of this is workflows, and there's other things, but uh, I, I I'll, I'll kick it off by telling you what I think one of the barriers is to interoperability, and that's the fact that there's not a national patient identifier. And I don't know if there will ever be one. Uh, I imagine you agree with that. But what other barriers do you see for interoperability? I agree with you that it's very unlikely we'll ever have a national patient identifier on that for sure. I don't know if I really believe anymore that technology is the biggest barrier to interoperability. Mm -hmm. I would say it's not. I believe that it's very much organizational, governance, political will, political with a small p, just to be mm -hmm. clear, the mm -hmm. local politics, the politics of action in any type of organization or community is where you really have the struggles. And by that, I mean competition. You know, there it's, it's famous in the community that in a certain 
a certain city in Massachusetts that you have hospitals that are across the street from each other that do not share data, or that it's very, very difficult to share data. And if you go there as a patient, they're going to ask you to fax something. And that is frankly ridiculous in one of the richest cities in the country with one of the best, you know, most well-funded healthcare systems, that that is an allowable outcome. It's allowable outcome, not because of technology. They use the same EHR system, not the same instance or the same install, but the same system. And they have cho- they have chosen to not uh, make interoperability a pr- priority or to use data sharing as a cudgel, as a competitive tool to stop patients from moving. And that is very much political will. That is very much organizational focus. That is very much, um, you know, how you are thinking about interoperability and patients' rights around data. That's all a whole variety of people and organizations deciding not to act, deciding not to prioritize it. So I would say in many cases, it is very much competitive behavior or anti-competitive behavior in this place, in this situation, um, not implementing policies and laws that we have in place already, um, not prioritizing this as an issue to care about immediately. And then when you get to the margins of the health and healthcare system, so big, big hospitals using big EHRs, not a technical problem. They can do whatever they want to do. When you get into primary care, you get into um, federally qualified health centers or community health centers, you get into the social services space or outwards in sort of public health, then you're talking about money. Um, It's really, truly that we do not invest enough into, you know, social care, into long-term care and supports, into, you know, primary care or organizations supporting, you know, uh, the safety net care, like qualified, like federally qualified health centers or community health centers. And there, it's not that the technology isn't known, it's that they don't have the money or time or people to upgrade the systems. So I think, again, less of a technology issue, much more of a priorities issue for all of us. Uh, I see part of it also uh, as a cultural issue. Uh, And um, uh, so, so even if you have the interoperability and a lot of external data, is brought before a provider when they're seeing a patient, uh, whether it's brought in, printed out, uh, it's electronic, it it comes in through uh, a fax machine, however it comes in, how much trust there is in that data. And uh, a generation ago, that never happened. Uh, But the workflows really kind of across the board uh, have not been adapted to handle uh, data coming in from an interoperable paradigm. You are definitely speaking my language here. Very much so it is a cultural issue and it is a workflow issue. And you need to have the sort of uh, collective movement of cultural change to want to change things like clinical workflows, 100%. I can certainly imagine, because I've seen it with my own eyes so many times, that a provider, that a doctor or a nurse or a staff member will say, okay, we can see that you had this test um, because we can see it in the HIE that we're connected to, for example, Mm -hmm. but we like to use our own data or we like to use our own systems. You know, we're just going to put you in for that test again. And that's how we get the most expensive healthcare system in the world per capita with the poorest outcomes to comparable countries and also just workflows that are gummed up with these useless documents that nobody uses or reads. One of the things uh, I'm interested in in history. And so if we look at the the history of the uh, 
adoption and expansion of electronic health records uh, and meaningful use. In the U.S., this was promoted by massive government financial support. We not, uh, uh, Basically, the federal government spent tens of millions, I don't know how many tens of millions of dollars, uh, subsidizing the purchase of these systems uh, and then paying regional extension centers to teach providers how to use the systems. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see anything like that in terms of interoperability. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It was around $36 billion, depending mm. on how you slice it, in sure. terms of what was spent on meaningful use and EHR incentives. Um, and then, of course, also the regional extension centers, which I think are a great concept that should still exist. So the regional extension centers, I support um, yes. doing more to support providers across the board. But I do think that, of course, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, the EHR incentive programs, um, you know, helped us make a step forward, but a bit of a shallow step forward. Um, I've I've heard um, folks from HHS, from the Office of the National Coordinator for Health IT say, hang on now. We really had to make a big leap forward. We had to do something, and we did get our foot in the door with getting people to start using electronic health records, electronic medical records. However, um, you know where we are today, we see the weaknesses of not prioritizing interoperability in those initial steps. Again, I think my friends at the ONC would disagree about um, you know the order of operations here. But by not prioritizing sharing and exchange of data, we really put ourselves in a difficult position because here we are today. There's not going to be another EHR incentive program at the scale and scope. Obviously, $36 billion at the time is a lot more now in today's inflationary dollars. So that's not going to happen. Congress is not going to give us another X number of billions of dollars to get people on interoperable healthcare uh, EHR systems. And so, you know, we are playing catch up and hoping that everyone on the margins is going to be able to somehow figure out how to get themselves involved in data sharing. And that is quite difficult. As you know, people and disciplines were left out, behavioral health, Mm -hmm. long-term care and support services, the the list goes on. There are so many types of providers and parts of our health and healthcare system are not included in incentives. To our audience, let me mention, if you just joined this episode, I'm Jim Tate, and today on the Tate Chronicles, I'm speaking with Lisa Berry of Civitas Networks for Health. We, we've talked about the importance of community data governance. How do you define community data governance? What does governance yeah. mean to you in this? Yeah, absolutely. For me, in this case, governance means sort of how we use the data and systems to meet the community's needs. Um, governance is the various rules for you know the types of use cases or types of ways we're using the data, whether we're using it for use cases like patient data sharing or for research or for clinical care, for social services care, social determinants of health. Um, we need to have specific rules and specific guardrails to build trust in communities about how data is going to be collected, used, shared, what's going to happen to it. And we really uh, center on the idea at Civitas that those rules should be more or less defined by the communities that it's about that they serve. So whether it's a state or a region or a local community, there should be some kind of organizing principle, whether it's a corporate governance model, a corporate governance board, or use case governance, or whatever else it is that has a structured format and has transparency and builds trust in what's happening with data. In terms of what is community governance for us, it really would be, what's the data about? 
who's it affecting, what's it for. If you're talking about clinical data exchange, typically you would have providers, you might have hospital systems, health systems, you might have payers, you would almost certainly have some kind of patients, uh, caregiver, uh, care partner representatives on a governing board that was looking at clinical data exchange. And then you might expand that list if you were talking about health data research. You would include the same kind of people. You'd also include, you know, academic research institutions or um, folks from technology companies who are helping enable research, um, folks from the government who are doing research that's relevant to the work you're doing. So whatever it is, that governance model should include the people and the organizations that it's about. Lisa, thank you for, for that response. Um, it's time to turn to uh, another big topic I'm looking forward to explore with you. And so let's talk about TEFCA. <laughs> <laughs> so we we live through the uh, regional health information organizations, the RIOs and the health information exchanges, HIEs, and all the different permutations of those things. And now I want to say here comes TEFCA, but TEFCA has been coming for at least six years, I believe, since legislation was passed. Um, and it shows great promise as a network of networks. You know, I, I kind of think of, of TEFCA as how telephones work. It doesn't matter what device I have or if uh, I'm on uh, one service provider for my phones, you're on another. If I dial your number, your phone will ring. So I, I like that kind of technical aspect of things, but uh, there seem to be some real challenges moving forward uh, regarding TEFCA. What, what are your initial thoughts? Yeah, I mean, as you know, you know, TEFCA comes out of the 21st Century Cures Act, which is now from, I guess it was uh, officially finalized in 2015 or 2016, but mm -hmm. for sure written many years earlier than that. And the problem with that is that, as you know, the, the market moves forward, technology moves forward, the landscape moves forward. And so it can be a little bit difficult when Congress overspecifies a solution. I think we all agree very, very clearly that nationwide data exchange is really, really important. Yes. Life-saving is mm -hmm. critical, needs to happen, needs to be standards-based, all of the above. So at, at the general level, I'm extremely supportive of the concepts behind TEFCA. It always, the devil is always in the details. Implementation is always much more difficult than writing a policy or a regulation. And that's where we are right now. We're in the middle of the implementation phase. After many years of trying to develop the principles and turn, you know, to turn the law into, into action, into creating the recognized coordinating entity, creating all of the um, standard operating procedures and the contracts around the common agreement. Yes. Um, we are, we're in the middle of implementation and just like I've expected, we've all expected implementation is difficult. Um, and so, you know, we are waiting um, with bated breath to see yeah. if we actually launch this year. And so I hope very much that we make progress on it, but I would say we don't have to wait for TEFCA to do the work that we're doing. There is already a tremendous amount of exchange happening across the country. We already have care quality with a ton of implementers. Mm. We have the health exchange, which has been around for many, many years and is doing a lot of work across the country between care quality and Commonwealth and the health exchange and you know vendor networks. We have a lot of exchange happening that we should definitely support to keep happening. I very much hope TEFCA adds versus takes away from the tremendous advances in nationwide exchange we've seen over the last couple of years. Well, one of the things I, I like about TEFCA is 
uh, part of the requirement is that the technology is uh, backwardly compatible, which is a good thing. Yeah. So for ex existing organizations out there, um, and also that there is uh, a provision for individual access, so patients can directly uh, uh, they'll they'll have to somehow uh, be connected to one of the TEFCA uh, QHNs quality health information networks. But uh, uh, I like that from the patient side. Um, I've talked to quite a few of the QHNs that are going through testing this year, mm -hmm. um, and there's starting to be a famous saying. Um, if you've seen one Q hen, you've seen one Q hen, uh, because <laughs> right. uh, some of them are delivering the bare bones requirements. Others are doing a lot of value add, such as stripping out duplications and mm -hmm. uh, adding additional features. So it's going to be, uh, and I have seen no pricing models whatsoever. So uh, if a particular EHR uh, decides they're going to embed a a connection to one of the QN networks for their providers using their software. Uh, they'll be making that decision. But one unknown around it for me anyway is the the assimilation of that data. Uh, the QNs talk about the edge. They bring the data, whatever that data is. It's going to vary somewhat. There's a, a minimum requirement. Uh, and dump it at what they call the edge, the edge of the EHR. So what those EHR vendors uh, mm -hmm. intend to do with that data and the workflows associated with it, I haven't seen yet. Maybe you have, but that's going to be fascinating to see that unwind. Yeah, and I would just pick up on what you just said earlier, which I think is a really important point as well, which again is the defining of standard operating procedures, rules of the road mm -hmm. for individual access and individual access services. There's two provisions. Individual access, patients can get their data, number one. And then mm -hmm. these defining individual access services, just having that in a sort of quasi-official sort of public-private partnership um, published to the world makes a difference because it creates a floor for individual access, right? You can go beyond that, but who's going to be able to say we can't provide individual access after that is finalized out there and live? And that is a big win for patients and their representatives to be able to, um, in a standardized way, you know, standardized costs, if any, um, you know, just really being very clear about how that happens. So I would say that's really important. But what you were saying just now about sort of delivering the data at the edge of the EHR, that's exactly what I mean by implementation is mm -hmm. tricky. And the devil is in the details there because that can be done very differently. It can be ignored, like we discussed, those workflow changes. It can yeah. be incorporated. It can be done in a way that's very easy for clinicians and staff to understand and use. It can be done in a way that's very hard with to click through a bunch of different tabs and go find the data. Obviously, the best solutions that those data are integrated into the EHR, into the clinical health IT systems, people can really understand what's going on, what they need to be aware of very quickly without a bunch of burden. But my concern remains, none of us are great at implementing mm -hmm. these systems, right? Now, many, many years ago, um, many health information exchanges started really doing what's called in-context implementations, where their data goes right into, you know, the clinical health IT system without a lot of extra work to try and yes. find it or bring it into bring it into play. Will that happen again with TEFCA, with the QHINs? I hope so. 
but I know that this is a place that's been very difficult for workflow changes to actually happen. Well, there's a big cultural thing there. Uh, and so uh, providers uh, may be interested to see that data, but they may well want to review it, see it on the screen before they reconcile it and pull it mm -hmm. into the database of the actual record. Um, yes. It's uh, uh, kind of uh, amazing. We're almost totally out of time, Lisa. But <laughs> but before uh, we say goodbye, um, how can our listeners find out more about Civitas uh, as well as the upcoming annual conference? And is it too late to register for that conference? Absolutely. So we have a bunch of information on our website, which is civitasforhealth.org. That's F-O-R health.org. And you can see our, you know, open free to the public resources, including our health data utility framework and other information about our programs and activities, as well as what it means to be a member, what that incorporates and how you could partner with us or become a member. But also importantly, it is definitely not too late to attend the conference. It's a little less than a month from now, mm -hmm. um, starts on August 20th. It's in National Harbor, Maryland, just across the river from DC. Um, and there is a ton of great um, content, tons of great unconference sessions, particularly we have a lot of sessions that are less didactic, more about us all sharing and learning from each other, and really some world-class speakers in public health and related domains. Um, so anybody can attend, you don't have to be a member. Um, you can also find the information about registration for the conference on our website again, civitasforhealth.org. The uh, let me mention I've been to some conferences at the National Harbor. That is a great place for a conference. It is, as opposed to being downtown some major city. <laughs> yep, and and we've got some great rates around the hotel and things like that. So we really um, welcome um, folks to attend and learn more about the work that Civitas members are doing broader community there's a lot of really interesting stuff happening this year well to our audience thanks for joining me on this episode of the take chronicles and i of course offer a special salute to my guest today lisa berry of civitas networks for health lisa thanks for coming aboard today thank you so much for having me you can find more information on this show's program page at healthcarenowradio.com. That's healthcarenowradio.com. Until we meet again, here's wishing you smooth sailing and safe harbors. Tape Chronicles transmission ending now.